0: Welcome to the Hyper Voice. I'm your host, Stephen Morioka, and today I'm joined by Alexander Hill. Alola, Stephen. Alola. Also joining us is Gavin Michaels.
1: Hey there, good beer.
0: Alright, welcome everyone. This is a show all about Pokemon's video game championship series, also known as VGC for short. Today we have a lot of various different topics to talk about. And for both of you guys, usually when people ask you a question such as, what would you prefer to hear first, the bad news or the good news? What What do you like to do?
1: Mm, I like to... You always want to hear the bad news first, right? Like, otherwise, you're just listening to the good news thinking about, well, not, what's the bad news?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right?
2: I, I agree with that sentiment, you know? You just you get it over with and, you know, end on a happy ending.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Likewise, we're going to be doing the same thing here. We had an issue at the regionals in Mexico, in Mexico City specifically, I believe, was the city was held in, but the big issue for the, for the week really, uh, since this event has been a charging issue by, uh, in a certain match. I think it was the last round of Swiss for them. But essentially what the situation was and what it really boils down to is there. the main thing is one of the players did not let his opponent charge. Uh, mm-hmm. and this was between games, correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was after game one, he said, hey, can I move to the charging station, and opponent said no, and the judge backed up his opponent.
0: Okay, so, yeah, this, this is pretty much what happened uh, when it boils down to the basics, but let's talk about this situation here. What do I think about it? What should the judge have done? What should the player, uh, you know, what pl- should the player have done here?
1: I mean... I think we've all been in situations where our opponents asked us to charge DSs, right? Like, it happened to me several times at, like, the last regional I was at. This is a pretty common thing. It's just something you do. Like, I, don't, I never even thought about saying no. And I think that I could be wrong on this, but I'm pretty confident that players are entitled to uh, move to a charging station between games. Like, the judge doesn't have a right to say Yes or no, there's just like they should always approve it. Uh, on the judge part, I think from
2: what I heard, it's just like DS charging is supposed to be like your responsibility, and uh, everything else that they give you, charging stations, moving you, and stuff like that, is just uh, accommodation and like not accommodations, but just uh, like little benefits that they're giving you that they don't have to go through with. Um, but I still definitely do side with what gavin is saying you know i've been in the situation where my ds is on red or i've been playing against someone whose ds has gone red um and obviously you don't move in the middle of the set and i'm pretty sure that's like in the rules or something like that but you know you wait till the end of the game and then afterwards you go ahead and move to a charging station i've never even really considered you know saying no to my opponent in that kind of situation like saying hey like I, you know, I want to do everything that I can to win. I don't want you, it's your responsibility to charge your DS. I want to win, you know, within in a game playing like BGC because that's kind of what I came to do.
0: Yeah, so there are two things that, you know, kind of stick out to me here with what you guys said. And first thing is responsibility as a player to keep your system charged between rounds during the tournament to make sure it's nice and healthy when you're actually playing during the best of three matches. So obviously if... The player wasn't a better spot to, with the charging at least. Uh, wouldn't have been, we wouldn't have had this situation in the first place, but, you know, sometimes these things happen. You don't get to charge always between rounds. Uh, maybe you have long matches that and you lead from one round to another. So let's just ignore this fact for, for this instance and just say, um, the judge, I felt, didn't really provide enough authority to me. You know, as a judge for these events, you need to be uh, really just assertive in your decision making and not leave it up to the player's discretion, which I felt like is what the judge did here. And I'd rather have said the judge tell the player, no, you can't move, or the judge say, yes, you guys have to move.
1: Yeah, no, I can agree with that. Um, one thing I wanted to say about charging in between rounds is that, at least for me, I only think about charging in between rounds once I see my DS go red. Like, there's not really a great visual indication of when your DS is sort of low on battery. If it's still just blue, like, you're not really going to be charging it. Like, unless you obsessively charge it every time between rounds, regardless of what battery power it's at, which I have never seen anyone do, by the way, it's mainly just like you see. Oh wow, my DS is really low. I'm going to go charge it. But if you don't see that your DS is low, you're not going to charge it. You kidding me? Who does that? The only like system
2: we have is just a four bar system. Is it at four, three, two, one bars? Uh, and I think by the time it's at one, you go red. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a really hard system to judge. It's not like you know on a typical cell phone where it says I'm at eighty-seven percent or you know twenty-twelve percent or something like that. Uh, just it's a lot harder to define. And so, you know, you really don't know when it's time to go charge until, you know, once you've hit red. Uh, I think that this incident is definitely just, you know, maybe a bit of an eye opener for people saying like, you know, just make sure that you keep a charge towards those later rounds, as well as, you know, some people should consider investing into those portable chargers. But uh, I still stand by, I think that, you know, if, if these things happen, you know, you're not going to always be able to charge, you should just, I think
1: you should move. Uh, but yeah, going back to what Stephen was saying about the judge being authoritative, like, yeah, I mean, that just isn't something that should be really left up to the players because mm-hmm, it does just leave a whole lot of room for bad things to happen. And when you're judging, you're sort of representing really every judge out there because even if a judge disagrees with your ruling. Um, if you make a new decision as a judge, the other judges have to back up your decision, the decision that was made first, even if they disagree with it. Mm-hmm. So saying, eh, do whatever is just, it does a lot of bad things for not only the game, because, hey, what if one of the, play- the players just do something that just isn't kosher? And it's also just really reflects, Poorly on the rest of the staff who don't even agree with him just because of what they're forced to do afterwards
0: right and you can always make an appeal to the head to you know per the event rules uh, based on a ruling by a judge um which you know maybe could have come into play this but i don't think this was uh something that maybe qualified in that regard maybe it will in the future but another thing i want to point out is this sets a bad precedent for the future for the specific player, uh, you know, kind of gives kind of gives them a bad reputation for the future knowing they were the one in this situation and people, you know, unfortunately, people are going to remember this name for that reason.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could say that the situation was handled poorly and that it does lead to a little bit of wish hunting, right? Just saying who that person's name is. I'm going to decline to say their name here. But mm-hmm, if you want to find it, you can easily look it up. And I don't know. I mean, it is something where you don't really want to be witch hunting because it happened. It's over. But like, it's also one of those things where this isn't something that's okay. And as bad as it sounds, maybe like saying this is the person who did it, like encourages people to not do this in the future. Cause it's like, Hey, if you do do this in the future, everyone in the community is going to know your name for what you did. And maybe that's enough incentive. Yeah, I agree.
2: That is a good point that, uh, you know, just having that like uh, infamy associated with it will at least scare people off from doing this in the future.
0: Yeah. So things hopefully, you know, get sorted out nice or at least get sorted out better after this for future events. And you definitely don't, you want to, if you're ever in this situation, I feel like just be a good person and let your opponent charge. You know, there's there's a certain line with uh doing things to win in the game, and this is not one of those right things to do. Yep. But I think we've said enough about this. You know, this has gone around plenty on social media, but the charging issue will put the rest. Hopefully this doesn't become an issue, uh, doesn't become, you know, revived in the future, but Another thing we're going to talk about now is one of the regionals that also occurred um, during uh, the last American regional, which was Madison. We had Birmingham in Birmingham in the United Kingdom, and we're just going to quickly go over some of these uh, players and teams here. So, Alex, do you want to start us off here?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, really, we ended up seeing Rachel take it home in the end, um, and... Yeah, I didn't get to catch much of this event just because I was at Madison Regionals, uh, and I know you were as well, Stephen. But it was, uh, it was being officially streamed, so that's really cool if you guys want to go back and try to watch it.
1: Uh, and Gavin, did you end up getting to catch any of it at all, or no? No, dude. Like, it's so hard as a player on the West Coast to watch UK streams, because it starts, it starts, like... Uh, it's so late for me that i can't stay up to watch it and by the time it ends well that's around when i wake up so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's just a pain but i did uh and uh i mean i'm obviously looking at the teams right now but that's most of my interaction <laughs> with it unfortunately yeah i'm right there with you i
2: only happened to see like one of the earlier couple of rounds when i woke up and i was getting ready for regionals but really haven't gotten to see a lot of this event, and I uh, just haven't had the time to go back and check it out. But we did see a uh, pretty interesting team take it all in the end, one that I've seen before a couple of times on the ladder. But uh, they had Tapu Lele, Buzzwool, Nylego, Arcanine, Driftblim, and Snorlax. So like a Driftblim-Lele team, but uh, it has Buzzwool, who you don't always see there. Snorlax maybe to annoy Trick Room as well as an Ilego, which I do or do not know might have Trick
1: Room as well. Uh, One thing that sort of struck me about the team is that I think one thing that we're seeing more so as the meta starts to progress is teams that sort of accept a couple of matchup weaknesses, which basically say, okay, if I see this Pokemon, that's a bad matchup for me, but they're you accept it just saying, hey, there's a good chance they don't have to play it. Um, and one thing I noticed with Rachel's team is that really Arcanine is sort of her only way of dealing with Celestela. Right? Um, Mm -hmm. and while Arcanine is probably the best way to deal with Celesteela in one Pokemon, it's still just one Pokemon and every Celestela team has around a billion ways to deal with Arcanine appropriately, but it also is one of those calls, because hey, she's fairly weak against Celestia, but at the same time, that allows her to distribute resources more to everything else, and that's going to make her much stronger than an average team uh, against a team without a Celestia.
0: That's very true. And even, though, even you look at some of the other teams in the cut here who I imagined maybe she got to dodge during the rounds, but she probably also could have played them and during Swiss as well. But you see there's also three Celestia in the top eight, and, you know, I like what you said about having extra resources to deal with the other Pokemon. And if you have, if you have enough, uh, resources and power behind you to get around everything else on the team and you can whittle it down to say a three on one or four on one against Celesteela, you'll be fine in either, in either case there. So, uh, that's an interesting approach and I wonder if you'll we'll see more of it. Uh, in the coming weeks, as the last few tournaments of the season uh, happen.
1: Yeah. I mean, for the most part, though, that was sort of the exception in Cut because, like, uh, the other. There was so much Topococo Arcanine here. There's, like, um, six teams with Topococo Arcanine. Am I counting that right? I am not. Five teams with Topococo Arcanine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, five. And, yeah. And I mean, it is sort of to be expected, because going back to the Celestila thing, like, Topicoco and Arcanine are the two best mons at dealing with Celestila, as well as being really good. And if you don't have one of them, you start to think to yourself, oh, how am I getting around dealing with Celestila? And, um, if you look at Jamie Boyd's team, you look at that and it's like, okay, um... Obviously, Naligo, Tapu Bulu are weak to it, but you could say, okay, Mandibuzz has options against Celestila. Melodic can win the late game 1v1 against Celestila by just putting out damage with Scald. If it gets a competitive boost, it's a very clean win. And then Pheramosa is also putting out a lot of damage against it. So, you do see a couple of these alternate ways to beat Celestila. It's not that just, if you don't use Tapu Coco Arcanine, you aren't necessarily just scooping to Celestila. There's ways around that, but um. Yeah, I think that most players just think that going with Top Goku Arcanine is just the easier way to deal with it.
2: You know, you did mention uh, Jamie Boyd's team, and while it is one of the more interesting looking teams in cut, it's also worth noting that it looks very similar to Drew's team, who uh, it does, ended yeah. up taking it all in yeah, Madison. Yep. And so you got to wonder, like, why were these teams both having success in the same weekend? I don't know if these players worked together at all, since they only had four overlapping Pokemon. But they did have this kind of core four that we saw Drew use a lot on stream. Yeah, uh, you saw, and I—I I mean, the name for it, I do think, is kind of fun. Is Ban Nilego or not? Not Ban Nilego Ban Faramosa, right? Yeah, there we go. Ban Faramosa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which I think is really cute and clever, and it's definitely something I agree with. But <laughs> anyway, opinions aside, uh, it is a uh, interesting to see that two uh, teams or two players using this core four having success in the same weekend.
1: Yeah, I mean Bulu Arcanite Maligofermosa. It isn't like the thing that's interesting to me is that it isn't necessarily that intuitive, right? I mean, um, there's a decent amount of overlapping weaknesses. You think, okay, there's not a whole lot of Pokemon that can really switch into it, or sorry, that it can switch into. It really only has the Arcanine providing that bulk, and everything else doesn't really want to be switching into attacks that it doesn't re- resist. But it just puts on so much offensive pressure, and it's really hard, clearly, for teams to deal with it.
0: Yeah, I agree with you there. Uh, definitely can see, you know, Faramost is one, of, definitely one of those pressure mons, as well as Nilego. Um, You know, one of those premier ones in the format. And you'd mentioned earlier about the Tapagoko Arcanine count, and you're right. Technically, you would be right with the numbers we're seeing here, but what, what what happened with our counting is we see uh we have a ninth seed who is also x in one who did not make it in a top eight so uh, we just again had one of these weird situations where you have an x in one not make cut uh it's rare but uh, it's been happening more frequently it seems like.
2: Yeah, that's definitely worth talking about considering that, uh, the team was very similar to, uh, the team that made, uh, to actually wanted it all, Rachel's team, you know, Tapu Coco instead of, uh, Snorlax there. Otherwise the teams look nearly identical. And so that's, uh, just kind of interesting to see considering, uh, yeah, that they both look. So similar. But unfortunate that David was uh, unable to make it into the cut just because I think there was a round error. They didn't run the correct number
1: of rounds. I think what ended up happening was that uh, players joined late is what it was, I think. And that just boosted the amount of players there were. Um, And that like barely got it over the amount where they would have an extra round. It was something weird like that. Okay. Okay.
0: Okay. That makes more sense because I wouldn't. I wouldn't expect you know seeing numbers in the beginning. A judge I don't think would make a mistake about how many rounds to put in, but that makes a lot more sense if players were added in late and there's you can't change the number of rounds after that.
1: Yeah. Though I mean, there have been a lot of European tournaments who have done some wonky stuff this year. Um, Like I mean, London had. Two fewer rounds than it should have. They're internationals. Um let's see what else. Obviously there is that big uh top thirty two cut regional. And it's like there is a precedent for lack of standardization in Europe, but I think this was more so an example of just um something getting broken because of adding players late. Like this isn't something that people could have really foreseen, I think. Mm-hmm. Something else I did want to mention about the tournament
2: was we did see a lot of one-off Pokemon, which is kind of cool to see, I would say. Like, you see, uh, I guess down at the bottom, if you're looking at the Trainer Tower page, they show all the uh, number of Pokemon that only had one appearance in the cut. But there's a lot of things in here that you wouldn't see generally in a tournament uh, at all. Like, Silvalli (laughs) is a Pokemon you might not fight throughout your entire Swiss rounds. Uh, Scizor, and then... Uh, Only one representative of AmandaBuzz, although it's a relatively standard Pokemon, as well as Melodic. And so, yeah, just a lot of, uh, like I said, one-off Pokemon that don't always make a ton of appearances throughout the majority of the tournament, but ended up making it into the cut here.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that uh, Jason McKellig's team, uh, while it doesn't have the Gigalith, um, it looks very similar to the team that won the Battle Road Gloria. Um, mm, mm-hmm. I mean, at least that's what comes to mind when I see the Silvali and then it has enough similar Pokemon that's like, okay, it's like that team, but with the Snorlax instead of Gigalith. And I'm just making a guess here, but you would think so. Yeah. Yeah. You see like this, like kind
2: of common core, like uh, a lot of players uh, I've seen in the cut with uh, Arcanine over that Silvali there. And then it's kind of just taking this, uh, standard core that you've seen in the trainer tower site, um they talked about it in one of their metagame wrap-ups, as well as, uh, I believe Salamence used the exact same six, except Arcanine over Silvali to make it into the top cut of a regional before, so, uh, just a lot of, like, just a lot of good Pokemon mesh together. You take a, a really good three in the beginning there, Silvali, and then, yeah, Mimi Uh, I'm sure people who uh, listen to all the podcasts have heard me talk about this several times over, so I'm not gonna go into too much detail, but just, I feel like I've seen this a lot. Yeah.
0: no, No, you're definitely right about that, like, Every time I see the, you know, that core four, and even sometimes with a member replaced, and then two, two of something other in the back, you know, I've seen that a lot. So
2: Alex Gomez has it here at this tournament, as well as Jamie Dixon.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. That's that's exactly the point I'm trying to make here. It is it's very strong. It's been very common, uh, prevalent throughout the entire season.
1: Uh, I mean, I think like the most interesting team here that like very clearly is Matt Carter's team, which most teams have, like, one Pokemon that you see. Okay, that's not too common. Matt's got three, which is impressive, I feel. Um, those three yeah, are, are. are uh, Salamence, who, uh, he was using the Dragon Dance Z-move set, right?
2: Uh, I'm not actually sure. I've seen a couple of different Salamence's, whether it's you are talking about Nails using, uh, Toxic his... Sub. His toxic Sub 1 <laughs> or his Dragon Dance Rock Slide Earthquake 1 with Roost. Uh, yeah, the, I bet you don't see Men's much anymore. Like, from the beginning when he was using Devastating Drake, I think a lot of people realized that wasn't the way to go. So, yeah, Men's has really fallen off, and I agree that it's odd to see it here.
1: Yeah, then it's also got Hariyama and Scissor, which is pretty pretty nuts. Um, I mean, Hariyama and Scissor are both notable because. They're both two Pokemon that just lose so much uh, if going against a Tapu Lele. Because Scissor's big thing is, as anyone who played 2013 would know, is it's a Stab Technician Bullet Punch, which does a lot of damage. But if it's in Psychic Terrain, not so much. So partnering it with two other non-Lele Tapus... Makes it so that hey, he can reset terrain a lot. He doesn't really have to worry about psychic terrain. He can just bullet punch Tapu uh, Lele's pretty freely.
0: Yeah, I definitely think you're spot on about that. As it, those, the other, the other Tapus being there, you know, like we've seen on plenty of those other, plenty of those other teams from you know these past few weeks, it gives you terrain control. Let Scizor and Haryama do their thing. Uh, provide the priority moves for support and just dealing damage and Definitely provides a little more help against Gigalith too, especially with uh, Scizor being there.
2: It's also funny that uh, Gavin is saying Hariyama is a notable, interesting Pokemon, considering he's won regionals twice with it. But it's dead now. It like died. well,
0: not it went totally to the Shadow Realm. Drew won <laughs> with it. <laughs> Drew won okay. with it.
1: But yeah, but it's been like replaced with like mainly the Assault Vest set. I know that uh, Drew was using Flame Orb, right? I I can't remember, but I I know Drew had it. Yeah, he did, but, like, it wasn't his mainstay Pokemon. Like, it wasn't... He did really hammer in bringing Bulu, Arcanine, Neligo, and Pheromosa. Yes. I
2: never saw Rakuenit or Hariyama on the stream. I didn't watch every round, but from what I did
1: see, like, it was just banned Pheromosa the whole way. Yeah. Um, I mean, Hariyama's an interesting mon, right? Because Fake Out is really, really good, and it has really terrible distribution in the format, so... Having that um is nice for just allowing you to set something up. Because that's what you really want to do with the free turn, because if you aren't setting something up, they can just double protect and then hey, you wasted your fake out. Um and that part with a potential dragon dance salamence, scissor, which is known for running swords dance. Um, that's a little bit of synergy right there. And then what it also does is just really do a good job of dealing with Porygon too, which not many other Pokemon can say. Because like even Buzzwall actually like loses a one v one against Porygon 2, which is insane. Right? How is that? I guess because they're stuck using superpower? Yeah, they use superpower, Porygon 2 recovers and they just lose.
0: <laughs> yep, yep, no, definitely. Uh I played a I played a team I played a team that had a back in the Virginia regional. I was able to my Porygon 2 was able to win against Buzzwall, mainly because of superpower, kept losing its strength. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, I can back you up on that. <laughs>
2: All right, I guess
1: Porygon 2 is as dumb as Gavin describes it to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but Horiyama can just keep using close combat. You're never going to lose that strength. Yes.
2: I think that it is a good point, especially with the Flame Orb one, you know, it's able to just like one-shot it yeah.
1: without intimidate. So, um that along with like knock off to get rid of Eviolite as well as berries, just like it does deceptive knock off does deceptive amounts of damage just because if you close combat an Arcanine, you're doing, like, maybe 50% to it. Knockoff, you're doing 25% to it if you're intimidated. But you get rid of the berry, which is basically doing 75% to it. So it's actually stronger, as which, like, weird to think about, but
2: yeah. You're making Pokemon sound like an economy class. Like, you know, <laughs> it's better to invest in a, in a knockoff early, because then you're really just growing oh, your God. growing your damage output. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I do agree. Uh, it's fun that, uh, you know, we saw Hariyama here as well as a lot of other, you know, interesting picks. And uh, it was really cool that Matt was able to show off such a interesting team. I think that's really all there is to say, though, on Birmingham. Um, unfortunate that there was a little bit of mishap with the cut, but we did see uh, a very strong... Uh, number of players in the cut like I these are all names that I recognize so definitely recommend checking out the teams as well as the players on trainer tower uh, if you haven't already and I guess really now what we got to talk about is uh regionals you know just regionals are done now we, we don't exactly we don't have uh results from Mexico yet so we'll maybe talk about those in the future uh, once we know all of the teams and how all the players finished but We do know that all regionals are over. Uh, There is a couple of special events left to happen, but uh, there's nothing left that's going to reward as much CP as a regional. And so I guess it's time to kind of talk about them all as a whole. Wait, there are special events in the United States? There is one. You did not know about the Ohio one? Are you kidding me? That's what everyone's doing. It's actually for us recording right now, Gavin, it's this coming weekend. Oh my god. So, you know, you check your flight prices to Ohio if you really need more CP. I don't know how well you're doing. You're like 6, I
1: think, right? I'm 5th now.
0: So are you worried about leapfrogging right now?
1: Uh, I mean, Chubb is too far ahead of me. It's annoying. He's like 100 points ahead of me.
0: <laughs>
2: well, you get 130 for first at a special event. So, you know, if you're feeling confident enough in your hard trick room, you know, bring it out there and, you know, maybe maybe leapfrog a little bit past uh, Chubba if you are able to take it all.
1: Wait on, weren't special events designed to be, like, for regions that couldn't, didn't have enough regionals or events there? So it's like, hey, you can have a special event just to, like, as a thing.
0: You know what? I don't know what they were designed for. I felt like they were supposed to be supplementary just as additional tournaments that certain places wanted to hold.
2: I think (laughs) when uh... I was reading about special events in the description, it made it sound like, you know, they were going to be tournaments hosted alongside, like, gaming conventions. And that's uh, okay. what this one is. Like this, gotcha. is, it's at Origins, which is a gaming convention. Never been to it; don't know much about it. But that's what it is. They're going to be hosting like PCs all week long, like tw- one or two daily. I can't remember. Uh, so that's what a lot of people are doing: is uh, if they want to, you know, seal up that invite or you know make the CP thresholds that they have to get
1: uh, at nationals easier. Then that's what they're going to Origins for. Dude, I've been to a solid two PCs this in Southern California this entire season. That's so crazy! Oh my god, is I that mean, just because you don't need them, or is it because of just availability? We don't, we don't have events in Southern California. It's not a thing that exists. Well, you have regionals, and you just made a count there. Shout out to tournament organizers in Ohio, man! Like, as much crap as we give them for how many events they have, like, they clearly really care about doing a good job, and I mean. They're doing an excessively good job, but I mean, hey, they're gonna keep running those tournaments
2: keeping you know uh, keeping the opportunities out there you know if you really want Pokemon events, you
1: know book yourself like a one week trip to Ohio. you can make it to like three mid seasons, I'm sure, yeah, no, and yeah. that's I mean that's why they have so many players in worlds actually, wait, actually, I think they only have one world's player if I'm right, well, isn't Ashton represent Ohio? yeah, and that's it, I think maybe okay, okay. Well, you're the one keeping up with all that. Um, I have to obsessively check all that. It's it's not fun.
0: <laughs> Whatever.
1: <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah, but
0: yeah, that uh, I think that last special event happening at the Origins Game Fair is, you know, throughout this middle weekend in June, they have PCs from Wednesday through Sunday. They have the special event on Saturday. Um, yeah, still a lot of points that people can try and pick up to, yeah, meet those thresholds. Which is the point I want to bring up here is if. Obviously, there aren't many events left, but you want to make sure you've crossed those certain thresholds um to make your Nationals finishes a little bit easier, or just know what you have to do to qualify there if that is your last-ditch effort. But uh Gavin had mentioned, he was talking about how he doesn't have that many PC events in Southern California, but obviously didn't seem too bummed about it, mainly because he's had a lot of success this season winning two of the 15 North American regionals here, so obviously performing very well. And we also have Alex who won in Collinsville. Um, yeah, obviously are you, you guys... just buttering
2: us up for no reason, Stephen? where are you going? No, no, I'm, I'm trying to get, I'm trying
0: to get to a point here, but you know, with, with the, these regional wins, you guys pick up a rack up a lot of points to help in your aid in qualifying for worlds. Still crazy to think that even with Gavin's two regional wins alone, he did not qualify for worlds and had to get points from elsewhere. Uh, kind of just to think about that. But, uh, regardless, regionals this season. We had the four that were in the fall that played in the 2016 format, and then everything else that happened um, since then in the 2017 format. Just, what are your overall thoughts on how everything, how this season played out?
1: Okay. So, I think the big thing is, this season started off really, really crazy, at least if you're looking at 2017. Like, do you want us to talk about um, the late after Worlds 2016 regionals, or just start with 2017? No, nah, just start with 2017, I'd say. Yeah,
0: that's that's right. fine.
1: So, if we're looking at 2017 results, um, it started off being really, really crazy, I think is the best way to put it. Like, um, the first couple of regionals were San Jose, which was won by some Trampa. Um it's like, that's weird. But the thing that that introduced, which is the important thing, is that regional introduced the world to Tapu Fini. Which, like, yes, it's really weird to think about now, but Tapu Fini just wasn't a thing until Anosh used it. And then when Anosh used it, Tapu Fini really, really, really became a thing. You know, how could a Tapu be good if its terrain doesn't even boost its stab moves? Exactly, right? Like, it just didn't make any intuitive sense. People just didn't think about it. And then um, at Dallas, what had happened was it was another porygon 2 a team that ended up winning. Uh, this is our other two-time regional winner, Andrew Nowak, who won that. Um, mm-hmm. The interesting thing there was he had Mudsdale, which was like also not seen. And Mudsdale got first and fourth at that regional, which was insane, because Mudsdale, to be clear, just wasn't a Pokemon at the time. Mm-hmm. It was a ride Pokemon. Oh yeah, no, it's like a ride was
0: Pokemon.
1: <laughs> really important. And then like, what we're saying here is a lot of metagame development though, because at Dallas, that's when Tapu Fidi started to really become popular because it was the most popular Pokemon at Dallas after not being used a week ago. Just skyrocketed up, and that's the craziest thing to me. Um, and then we're really starting to see, like, the modern strategies emerge. There's still a lot of weirdness. Crocodile was still a popular Pokemon, which didn't last super long, but hey. We gotta find Intimidate somewhere. Exactly, yeah. People wanted to be cool back then. They didn't just want to use Arcanine on all their teams. But they real- needed to realize that they should give up their dreams.
2: Well, that's because, you know, very early, Marowak was actually, like, number one. And so everyone had their fire type. They had Marowak. And it's like, well, why add an Arcanine? I don't need an additional fire type. And I'm not worried about Cartana, because Cartana's, for some reason, also not a thing yet.
1: So I'll use Crocodile. Yeah, exactly. Like, Marowak was just so popular, which was really strange to think about in retrospect. I mean, it slowly went down as the regionals went on, but you still saw it in, like, even in Georgia, the third regional. You saw it on a quarter of teams, which is crazy high. Like, I think now if we saw one Marowak in top cup, we'd be like, Whoa, it's crazy. Throwback. Yeah. Throwback,
0: right? And, you know, I think a big reason with that, with the Marowak and the Crocodile combining there for, you know, decent usage, decent usage back then is again, you know, not needing to supplement Intimidate and Fire type into Arcanine, but we didn't have AFK. Yet it wasn't very popular back then. I want to see those maybe right after that regional. Yep. Uh, end of January, start in February, and that started to happen. And those two Pokemon are going to have some trouble against those.
1: Yeah, I've, AFK. We really saw it really stand out um starting in Georgia, where a crazy amount of teams had AFK. Hang on let me do a quick count of how many teams used it. Um, Edward Glover Min made top cut with it. Um, let's hear who else. Uh, Alvin Hidayah made cut with it. Rajan Ball made cut with it. Um, And you see a lot of, like, pseudo-AFK where it's, like, one month off, that sort of stuff. And it's, like, it really got popular at that point. Like, between Dallas and Georgia, I'd say, is when people were saying, oh, AFK, that's the new meta. That's AFK. It's the meta. But I think, like, the big thing that happened at Georgia was we had a lot of stuff, like, oh, wow, like, Paul's team won. It was cool. It was sort of a standardish team. Um, Sun Dude obviously introduced the world to Little uh, which was very strange. His team was super weird. But I think the most important thing to come out of that was Volt Switch Top of Coco, which Alvin Hidayat got top four with. Because now we just accept that Volt Switch is sort of the move on Top of Coco. Like, all Top of Cocos have Volt Switch, but it just wasn't that common. Like, no one used Volt Switch. Yeah. You need a discharge to get past Marowak. Or you used HP Fire because there were so many Assault Vest Cartana, or HP Ice to deal with Garchomp, but it's just that no one used Volt Switch, which is really crazy to think about. Um, That just got really popularized. And the other set was uh, Paul Chua also introduced the world to Twinkle Tackle Top of Coco, which as frustrating as it is because it has 50% chance to KO combined with the 50% chance to speed tie is really good at dealing with the top of cocoa beer. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: The, you know, just add a coin flip on top of a coin flip. Yeah. I mean, that was Georgia was such an impactful regional, in my opinion, like it added so many, it had so much stuff. You didn't really think about it at the time, but it was really forward thinking. Now, like, the big thing to remember, though, is that Gigalith really wasn't popular around this time. Like, Giggleth only really got popularized, I think, uh, after Nails, after ha- the infamous Hack Squad team just went through a tear through uh, St. Louis and Melbourne. I mean, mm-hmm. it didn't go through that much of a tear because, obviously, Alex, you ended up winning. Yeah. But... It got something nuts, like I think I heard that it got like 3,000 CP, that freaking Hack Squad team. Oh yeah, the team that Nick made? Yeah. Mm -hmm. For those of you that aren't familiar, Hack Squad, and this is gonna sound familiar, is, uh... I could name it off the top of my head, though, but yeah, go
2: ahead. Do it, do it. I think it's Coco, Cartana, Arcanine, Gyarados, P2, Gigalith.
1: Yep, that's That's it. That's right, yep. And that that team was a menace.
2: We saw a couple of interesting sets there. Like, I can't remember. I think he was also running Ferium Z. And uh, at the beginning, it was Assault Vest Arcanine. But I saw a ton of people just take that team and put a, whatever twist they wanted onto it because it was pretty much just good stuff. So, you know, you take a bunch yeah. of good Pokemon. But it introduced the world to Scopeland's Cartana. <laughs>
1: yep. That was the main takeaway, in my opinion. Yeah. And it also introduced the world to slapping P2 if That's the last two on every team. Which
2: hey, it it works. This is something I wanted to talk about when you mentioned like Mudsdale earlier, uh and not nah, P two Araquanid was you know, that was what was originally winning. Uh Gavin has a famous tweet for like if you're not bringing P two Araquanid, you're throwing. Uh to for an American <laughs> regional that is. Um It wasn't but five then in people started reacting to it uh with P two Gigalith, Gigalith being able to take on Araquanid in Trick Room because it's slower and super effective. However if you wanted to beat uh, Gigalith and adapt to that, you could bring Mudsdale, and then you're beating Gigalith very easily, but now Mudsdale loses very hard to Araquanid, and so it just kind of creates this dangerous P2 plus Trick Room Sweeper cycle, uh, which is really interesting to me because it just depends on which one you end up bringing. Uh, We mentioned that team that Drew had earlier had both Araquanid and Mudsdale, and I think, though, while Gigalith wasn't popular at that stage in the meta, it was prepared to deal with pretty much any variation of it.
0: So I've got, I've got two things here. I need to add about that is, uh, I think it was curse on gigalith that really brought it, brought it out from where oh, it was yeah, hiding. Yeah. Um, cause we didn't have Pokemon for a while. And then people still didn't really think, Oh, we're not going to be using Curse on gigalith. There's no way that's going to be any good. And then that came out. I think, I think Nick had that on his team too, on that original version.
1: Yeah, he did. He did.
0: Yeah. So curse was there. That's been, you know, pretty much a staple on most gigalith, uh, up until now. And another thing is, Alex, you were the one who I think you were the one who cut the trend of the P2 Araquanid winning. You came right after Anaheim.
1: I did break the streak, sadly, yes. There was like three P2 Araquanid in Top Gun, they all just lost immediately. It was pretty sad. I think they all dropped out
2: in Top 16 because we had a Top 16 cut. And so like once Top 16 was over, I'm pretty sure there was no more hope.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Other thing I want to talk about is During St. Louis, we really saw the rise of Snorlax. I mean, Mm -hmm. Snorlax was, okay, really rose with um, Marcus using it in Leipzig. I think I'm pronouncing that wrong, but whatever. Um,
0: Yeah, Leipzig. But there's a P in there. No, no, I said that, Leipzig. Okay, okay. Leipzig. I'm pronouncing both. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, Uh, you're talking about Snorlax.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Like, Snorlax wasn't really a mod. Like, people didn't think about it until... We saw this Curse Lock set, and then um, the Belly Drum set won Anaheim. But um, the Curse Lock set was the main set. Like most so like you saw, you could bet on having Return, High Horsepower, Curse Recycle, and that's sort mm-hmm. of it. And like it made a bit of a tear during uh, Collinsville. Like it was on a quarter of the top cut teams. Uh, Justin Burns got second with it, and like teams just weren't really prepared for it. Like, they hadn't figured out how to beat it yet because Snorlax could really chew through teams that didn't have that much special burst damage and didn't have toxic. I mean, Snorlax could even win a 1v1 against Celesteela. It didn't, but it could. <laughs> yeah, there was always the chance. There was always the chance. Yeah. And that just, yeah. Um, let's see here, what was, like, the first regional where we started settling into the more modern set game? Well, one combo that I don't think we've talked about, and it's technically not, respond- like, it wasn't
2: based on regionals, so, yeah. per se, but, like, uh, Driflam Lele eventually rolled oh, around. yeah, absolutely. And that was as a result of, uh, of not, uh, of a regional, but of an international over in Australia, and so we first saw that in... What was the regional that uh, Aaron won with? In Oregon, Oregon. Okay, so yeah, once Aaron won with it in Oregon, that's when I guess you could say you saw the true impact of it. It wasn't too long after, and it was definitely something that people were aware of, though, and it still ended up taking it all anyway, just kind of showing the strength of that uh, duo uh, at the
1: time. Yeah, because what Drift Lele does so well of is it basically makes Tapu Lele better. The Drifloom isn't really doing much outside of just supporting the Tapu Lele. What it does is it can burn things that used to outrun and knock out Tapu Lele. Um, Shadowball actually did pretty decent damage to things. It could set up Tailwind, so now Tapu Lele is faster than things that could KO it. Like It was just entirely built around making Tapu Lele better. And it did a lot of work. Like It was a lot of natural synergy because of Unburden unburdenability.
2: Something that it also reminded me of was just kind of the way that 2016 played, where you had some kind of uh, supporter next to something very powerful, and you could choose to just focus on the supporter, but if you did, you'd end up taking way too much damage as a result. And so that Drift Bloom would kind of just sit there and be annoying, but the reason that you had to leave it there was because there was such a hard-hitting Lele next to it that you couldn't really just leave alone.
1: Yeah, that's pretty apt. Oh, man. Um, Yeah, so... That was the thing that became popular in Oregon. And then in the meantime, you saw like, Ashton win Sao Paulo with uh, Lilijin Torkoal, uh, Mimikyu, Snorlax, that sort of stuff. But I don't think that ever really like influenced the overall metagame too much. I think most people just sort of wrote it off as like a one-off thing. Mm-hmm. Especially as Gigalith just became more and more and more popular. Uh, Salt Lake City happened, and then I think everyone just chooses to ignore what happened in Salt Lake City. <laughs> yeah, that was a weird
0: one with some of the teams that came out of there.
1: But let's just talk about how weird Salt Lake was. Like, three out of the top eight teams had a Marowak. Uh only one of those had Thick Club. Only one? The other two let's were using get here. other two were using Figgy Berry. I knew there was one berry, but were the Yeah, Jarek and Matthew Greaves were both using it. With Willowis Parish Song, they're using support Marowak. Uh-huh. Huh. Um, The Rain Team beat the Ninetales Gastrodon Team. Yeah, what? <laughs> um, the Rain Team with Arcanine. Yep, the Rain Team with Arcanine. Yep. And just this Norlax chilling out there by itself. <laughs> like, no electric moves facing a Gyarados. Yeah, and uh, Preston won. So, yeah. I think that's because he Kyle his own Gastrodon at some point. We don't need to go into it too much, though. Just that Utah is weird, we don't, we're just gonna ignore it.
2: Yeah, I I definitely say it wasn't meta influencing, and, uh, I don't know, it just didn't end up, you know, playing a huge part in the way the rest of the season went.
1: Yeah, I'd say so. But the
2: following regional, Roanoke, definitely did. Oh, yeah. Although people can't exactly puppet the uh, winning team that Nick ended up using, (laughs) uh, there was a a very common team that we saw throughout the entirety of the tournament that everyone just decided to
1: break out at the same time. Yeah, I think that you could say that Roanoke was sort of the most important regional in terms of defining the meta, because that's when fake BG happened.
2: Mm-hmm. And like we saw a lot of top players representing it in the cut, as well as several just representing it on the stream that they were having there uh, that didn't even make it into the cut. There were so many players using it at the same time at this regional.
1: There were five rounds in a row where someone was using Tapu Koko, Tapu Fini, Cartana, Arcanine, Porygon 2, Kigalith. Like, I mean, we'd seen a similar team before with uh, Tokenamaru over the Tapu Koko. There was a a very common Japanese team. I think I got second at Gloria. Don't quote me on that. And then uh, William Tansley Star KO used it to uh, get top 8 at Sao Paulo. Um, But adding the Tapu Koko on just... What's really cool about FakeBG, as we all know, is that you can basically make any of the Pokemon any sets you want, and it still works. Mm-hmm.
2: Although, at this point, people really need to just drop the E, because here in America, we don't see people run Togedomaru with these like
1: cores. It's always Coco. We're going to need a new acronym. Yeah, and when Alex is saying that we don't need to mention Togemaru, we don't need to mention Togemaru. Uh... Look, well, you, you you
0: won a regional <laughs> Togedomaru, okay? Like, it makes sense. Shut up. Yeah, no, you're, right. you're trying to write it off here, so it's fine. It's fine.
2: <laughs> He's not right or wrong that it doesn't need to be mentioned in this meta wrap-up, because, you know, I, like I had sa- just said about Nick's team, it didn't end up influencing the meta. I won with Togedomaru, and you didn't see it after that. Just like, you know, Gavin had won with Drampa, but where did Drampa go? You know, sometimes Pokemon can take it all and just fizzle out right away no matter what. Yep.
0: Early meta phases though. But anyway, you uh, you know, we're, we're kind of more into modern metagame, and that leads us into what we were talking about earlier in this show, but uh, you guys have anything else before we move on?
1: I think that's mainly it. Well, there's also Seattle to talk about, um, but that's sort of mainly just an extension of the modern meta, and It's going to be, we don't really have the ability to see what from those, what from Seattle is actually going to be a long-lasting force and what's going to be just a one-off. Yeah, we're really just going to have to wait until Nationals at this point. And I'm fine skipping Toronto because that was a silly regional. (laughs) Well, just because it was won by Ninetales? Look, honestly, I was just surprised that the Ninetales outperformed the Vanillics and cut. (laughs) <laughs> no, I don't I don't disagree with you though. I I was surprised to see 9 Tails do it uh as well. <sighs> so bad. So bad. But another topic for another day.
0: Yep, sure is, but all right then. Yeah, that leads us to at this point where we're still waiting on Japan Nationals to happen, right? Am I right that hasn't happened yet? It has not. Okay, good. Good to know. Um that's coming up at some point and we also have the North American Internationals, so Two big, two, big, two of the big last events before Worlds, so this has been more of a meta review and looking through the timeline rather than a wrap-up because the meta game's not over yet.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But. Time to stop talking about BGC because we've got some other things to talk about really quick.
0: That was pretty cool to look through, but let's do these questions first from, from the submission and then we'll get to the, those other things about the Pokemon Direct and E3 news. So let's run through these questions and then talk about the other stuff, which uh, this shouldn't take too long, but let's see. Uh, so we got questions from Philip Heinrich, which ask. so we have three of them here. The first one is, what do you think about replacing the X-Cut system with more Swiss rounds in tournaments? Um, pretty much all he's asking is, you know, they use more Swiss rounds in chess tournaments and do we want to consider replacing a top cut system with more Swiss rounds instead? Um, what do you guys think?
1: I think more Swiss rounds is awesome because like the whole point of resistance is it's supposed to weed people out from each other. It's like, okay, this person is probably better than this person, but it's close. So we use resistance. More Swiss rounds. is just like, it's such a, it feels better because if you just keep winning, like you can prove that, Hey, I deserve to be here as opposed to just a computer approximating. Well, do you deserve to be here? Just being able to play more Swiss rounds is really nice, and it also means that there's uh less people who are tied with the same record, so resistance plays less of a role. Say instead of like twenty-six people vying for the last couple of top cut slots, you have six people, and that's way more manageable.
2: It also it makes me think uh more like a kind of like a ladder tournament. You know, you just play a ton of ton of games and you're gonna see even though, because everyone's limited to the same number of games, uh, and we're playing best of three instead of best of one, you know, at the end, you're going to see who played the most consistently over the whole tournament, and who really, like Ed Vincent said, said, uh, deserves to be there, because you're
1: going to have way less people with the same records. Mm-hmm. I think that you could do this through, like, a day-two Swiss system, or something similar to how we do it at internet or how TCG does it. Um yeah I think that that's something that definitely should be happening, especially considering how early uh regionals end like the only reason that regionals even go to like two p m of- on Sunday is that um they're trying to stream literally every game if we just did more Swiss rounds then you'd have a lot more people feeling like they got a fair shake, and then like it's just a better tournament
2: more Pokemon to watch more storylines.
0: Yeah, it wouldn't hurt to prioritize the players a little bit more than the spectators, but, you know, you gotta, you gotta satisfy them. Otherwise, you know, what's the point, right?
1: We can still stream games, but, like, just not all the games.
0: (laughs) So, yeah, uh, more Swiss rounds. I'm guessing, in addition to the X-Cut system, because I actually misread this question, I thought I just wanted more Swiss rounds and that was it. Like, no bracket after that, but, Uh, anyway, you guys pretty much, you pretty much covered it. Uh... Yeah, so yeah, I agree with that, definitely. Uh, more Swiss Rounds would definitely be better to add to the tournaments. Still have a some sort of single elimination format after that uh, in the cut. But anyway, moving on to the next question. Uh, he's been following VGC for around a year now, and there's been something bothering him. When people talk about how to improve in VGC, the usual advice is to understand why you've lost. This makes sense, but how do I do this as an unexperienced player? So, he mentions how, of course, I can see things like, I should have attacked in this slot because the opponent switched out in it, but it doesn't feel like it helps him for the next time when he has to make a similar decision again, since his opponent might be doing something different. In chess, there are engines that evaluate the position and tell you the best move when a Pokemon this does not work. So, I understand what he's saying here. In chess, there, there are only a certain set of moves that each, uh, what is it, piece can do in the games. With Pokemon, everyone can have different EVs, abilities, or not abilities, EVs, uh, move sets, and items. So that changes a lot of things differently. Um, so yeah, what do you guys think here?
1: I think the big thing is that you don't want to look at it in terms of oh, um, I should have made this read right, because generally you don't want to be relying on having to make reads. Um, mm-hmm. The way that you say, why did I lose this, is more so from an endgame analysis perspective. Usually you want to see, okay, I lost because this happened. Was there a move I could have done here that would have covered all his potential options leading forward? Because what you really want to be doing is sort of take the time and look at one scenario where there's like a couple of turns left and just try to flowchart it because that is what you're essentially doing when you're playing well in vgc is you're just going through all of your opponent's options and deciding what do i do is there a way that i can cover all of his options if i'm in an advantageous position if not what do i want to do that can get me back into this game or what options am i willing to ignore for whatever reason and just think about it like that instead of saying oh he did A, so I should do B, because he might not always do A.
0: So would you almost want to call this sort of a path, the path of least resistance to victory? Oh, It's almost in a sense, you know, because you're saying you don't want to have to rely on the reads, but rather make those plays that, uh, you know, give you put you in those advantageous positions to win later on in the games.
1: Yeah, I'd say so. And that's not saying don't make reads, because you're dead throughout your time you're going to be making plays that cover particular plays and playing straight up and obvious just usually isn't optimal it's just a matter of trying to understand the sequencing of turns and just trying to say is there a way in this game that i lost just looking back on it that i could have controlled more options is there something that should have let like you don't have to think to yourself it's like oh, I should have made this read because this reason, if it's a read-based scenario, like, it's acceptable that you get it wrong, because your opponent realizes that you're making a read, you realize you're making a read, it's, it's whatever. rock, paper, scissors. Yeah, no, like, you don't get mad at someone for picking paper instead of rock. Yeah. You can't look back into that and just
2: overanalyze it because, you know, you will win rock, paper, scissors. You will lose rock, paper, scissors sometimes. That's kind of how I like to refer to 50-50 sometimes just because that's normally what they end up being. You know, which move do you end up picking? Um, And so that's not a reliable way to go about winning. And as Gavin has said, you don't want to look back and look at that turn and say, Ah, if I had just picked the other option, I won the game. Look back further to where you could have avoided that completely. To where there's a scenario where I click move one and two, and my opponent can't win. And then, like you look at that, and you if you find those moves, you'll find yourself winning a lot more games. And so it may be difficult, but uh, another thing uh, I wanted to you know kind of mention, uh, and I see uh, Nick and nails mention this a lot on Twitter, is to uh, play your game. Like, you wanna play, uh, you know, a team that- you wanna play your team more, like, actively than reactively, because if you're playing to, like, execute your own strategy, you're normally gonna have a better time than trying to spend every turn reacting to what your opponent's going
1: to be doing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely fair.
0: Yep, definitely. Play your own game, definitely turn the dial down on that microscope, don't zoom in on a specific turn, but- you know, look at your entire game plan as a whole and the entire game as a whole, and reevaluate from there. So, last question here is: Do you think that people should experiment more during team building? Many people are using similar teams, but people like Ashton Cox or John Who are proving that it is possible to be successful while using non-meta Pokemon. So I'm gonna start off here by saying: sure, people can experiment more during team building, uh, it makes it more. F- I guess it could make it more fun to do that and play in, but at the end of the day, people want to win, win the matches, win the games, and sometimes the best way to do that is just through using something boring, standard, meta-Pokémon, and, you know, what really boils down to it is can this creative team get you wins? That's, you know, kind of a, one of the deciding factors on whether you want to use something like that. Uh, the ultimate, the ultimate, th- the ultimate thing is can you win with this team?
2: I think Steven wrapped it up pretty well. You know, uh, I could try to win with three starters and then, you know, the other three from my in-game team and be really proud of that and be like, wow, like, I can't believe I managed to get some wins with this team. This is so fun. You know what else is fun? Going on and winning a tournament, you know, winning a whole tournament. And if you have to do that with Arcanine, Coco, and a bunch of other Pokemon that you see every other game, that's fine because a lot of players play BGC to get enjoyment from winning. You play for the competition. And so if you're playing to win, you're going to use the Pokemon to give you the best chance in winning. You will see sometimes surprise strategies take it all and that you do need a bit of creativity to succeed in BGC, especially at high levels. But, you know, standard teams can get you there. And and not all of it is about team building uh, and having that edge in using strange Pokemon, but it's also
1: about playing the game. Um, One thing I want to say is that I think it's sort of an... Odd choice that he chose Ashton and John Hu as his examples because, um, I think the two teams he's referring to, which are John Hu's electric spam team and mm-hmm. Ashton's team that he used to win Sao Paulo, are both examples of very aggressive teams that can just flat out lose when, um, given a bad matchup. So I'm not necessarily sure how creative Ashton's team is, for example. There's a lot, it's basically just slapping on a whole bunch of pairs together that we've all seen before. And like, that's not to discredit it because it's basically using a whole bunch of strong things that work together and did it in a cool way. I mean, John Hughes' team is obviously super creative because it has a Pikachu and Electivire, so by definition, creative. But Mm -hmm. they really struggle as teams when presented with something that they're weak against. I remember that. I played who twice at the Seattle PC and I had an Assault Vest Cartana and because of that, I legitimately just won all the games. He couldn't beat me. He just could not beat Assault Vest Cartana. And in my opinion, that's a weakness in team building if a Pokemon can just show up and just completely ruin your day. I mean, another thing is with Ashton's team, like Assault Vest Garchomp, which I had like sort of, it was very close to just winning it by itself. Um, And I don't think that those are necessarily examples of strong creative teams. But I think our better examples of strong creative team building are things that just you don't expect, but are actually very strong. And that Tapulele Driftblum, very creative, right? Like, no one was thinking about Driftblum and stuff like that. And it was so successful because it wasn't something that was really easily beaten. It was just something that had a strong matchup versus a lot of teams, and versus the teams it didn't have a strong matchup against. It didn't just throw away the game to it. It was saying, hey, I can still win this game. Um, and you are seeing a lot of creativity ultimately end up winning regionals, even if it's not filling up the rest of the top cut. Like, I mean, hell, look at Virginia. Like, does anyone know what's going on with Nick's team? No? Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> and How could like, you? Like, that was the fake PG regional, and it was won by Grass Spam and Clefairy. Like, it's Toxic, toxic Stall Salamence. Like, creativity is very important because if you want to get an advantage outside of just being able to play mirrors better, you have to go for niche team building options that. Your opponents aren't prepared for but are very strong and play to your strength but you have to be doing it in a way that actually manages to cover everything otherwise you're just sort of not really playing to your own skill you're just playing to i hope i get a good matchup here and there's matchup reliance and everything but you should never ever have a team where you just see a pokemon in team preview and then say oh i guess i'll just lose that's just not a consistent way of doing things, nice in my opinion
0: cool, cool, so yeah i think I think uh you know you I kind of get your point about uh both you know the two examples teams not being you know the craziest uh this season, but uh maybe he was referring to a bit of their history and their some of their pokemon choices, but regardless um I think that'll do it for the questions, hopefully we answered philip to we answered them to the best of our ability and that those satisfy, uh, what you're looking for, or maybe you got more out of it, but, uh, thank you for the submission, you know, I really appreciate that, and, lastly, we're gonna move on here, to, these last few, these last few topics, and hopefully we get to wrap up soon, but, uh, this last week or so, we've had, uh, some very, very, uh, kinda crazy Pokemon news, um, dished out over the, the Directs and the Nintendo E3 Spotlight, and, I want to just start with uh, the Pokemon Direct. The beginning, like those first 20 seconds were the biggest tease I'd ever seen (laughs) uh, for us, you know, specifically for VGC2. You know, started, hey, something might be... We're doing this Pokemon game for the Switch, and then it starts, goes to... Oh, it's Pokemon Tournament DX Deluxe.
2: (laughs) For like six to seven minutes. (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) It just dragged on.
0: Then they move on to... um, we're gonna be getting new games later in November that is Ultra Sun and Ultra Moon. Um, obviously we're gonna to have to be switching over to those once we get to that point for the new VGC format. Um, so that was one thing. The other thing from E3 is that the president, Ishihara, I think. Anyway, the, the, the president of the Pokemon Company, uh, he talks about saying how there's a core RPG Pokemon game coming to the Nintendo Switch that'll be coming in, uh, over a year or so, so, Probably late 2018, 2019, maybe. So interesting announcements. You know, game coming to Switch, we're getting a new 3DS games. Uh kind of kinda of like the black to white two for this generation. Um yeah, just really quick thoughts, opinions on this.
1: I mean, it's gonna be interesting to see how it affects VGC, right? Cause like obviously we can't all bring Nintendo Switches to events just because like The battery life is an issue. Mm -hmm. Maybe they'll have ways to get around it, but that seems problematic. Um, But we'll see how VGC deals with it. I'm cautious, though, because it seems like it could be a difficult uh, challenge to overcome. Uh, Yeah, and then I would say
2: that, you know, having a game on the Switch, I don't expect it for a, a long time, like they had mentioned, you know, maybe even in 2019, So we'll have to see what happens when we get there, but uh, I'll be excited to play it. However, I don't think it, I'm not excited to see what it does to VGC because it's a big, uh, just, I don't know, mix in it, and I don't really know how it's going to be taken. So uh, we'll just have to wait for when that ends up happening. If it's just completely ignored, if we all have to end up playing on Switches, uh, we'll see when that gets here. And then as for Ultra Sun and Ultra Moon, I personally am really excited for it. I think it'll be cool if they, even if they take us back to the same world, if they just put some spin on it, add some uh, new stuff. Uh, I personally think it'll be really fun, uh, even if it is, you know, back in the same world. Uh, and then I guess the only, we didn't see a whole lot, but I really do not like the look of uh, White Kiram and Black Kyurem, and they're basically doing the same thing here with Solgaleo <laughs> and Lunala, and yeah. they, they look really ugly, if I'm being completely honest. I, I hate the, like, blending Pokemon look. It's just gross. If I wanted to see two Pokemon fuse together, I'd go on DeviantArt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, there are, there's tons <laughs> of people doing that. We don't, we don't need that in the official games.
0: Yeah, so this this is happening in November. You know, this, with the Switch stuff, I feel like um, we'll have to wait and see on that. We don't know whether it'll be Switch exclusive. Will it be simultaneous release for Switch and the 3DS versions? I don't know. Just, we'll get to talk about that eventually. Um, but, you know, with Ultra and Ultra Moon uh what this you know this is looking a little ahead here but this makes me worry that we're going to be playing vgc 27 up until november or december again when they had a they had an opportunity to switch us immediately after worlds
2: you're always hoping for that steven i think you know not (laughs) not everyone is i i think it could be fun i know you're like one of the you're a minority here in that you want to switch right after uh worlds uh i do think it would be interesting to do because you know the format would be kind of interesting if it peaked at worlds everyone kind of bust out literally everything they have because you have nothing else to hold those ideas for but uh i don't know it's kind of cool to see that post worlds development too it's kind of its own its own thing
1: yeah Uh, yeah, but it's but like the attendance numbers on it are really bad though like i mean this last year god what was the post world 2016 numbers like they were just like do we have any that were under 64 obviously like all of them are under 128, but did any get that bad?
0: No, no, nothing got that bad. There was one that got, like, maybe 160 to 180, I don't know, something around there. Philadelphia was kind of big.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Other than that, like, you're right, they are all under 128, the others.
2: Yeah. Okay. But yeah, it was, I don't know, it's, it's definitely sad to have to play uh, a, a quote-unquote dying format, because you're really not playing it for anything huge anymore. Uh, and you've already, you know, peaked with Worlds, but... Uh, I, I don't really see a great way out of it, so you know we're going to have to play it until Ultra Sun and Ultra Moon comes out, and we'll have to see what all br- uh, that brings with it. Hopefully not another regional deck, so Steven is definitely quitting BGC.
0: Uh, I may not even take that, so let's, let's <laughs> not talk about that right now. But, um, yeah, Ultra Sun Ultra Moon in November. We're probably going to get more. Uh, you know, Obviously at Worlds, there's going to be some special reveal for the game. or Yes, yeah, probably for probably for those games, but anyway... That's our show. Let's uh close out here and thank Gavin Michaels for being on again. Thank you so much.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was great being on.
0: Always a pleasure having a uh, two-time regional champion and a national champion. You know, pretty good player we got here.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's pretty alright.
0: Yeah, Gavin's not too bad. <laughs> uh, uh,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll go with that. We'll go with that.
0: Okay. Alright. Alright. I like it. Anyway, you can find our show on iTunes. Leave us a review there. Uh... Send us your questions or send us some feedback at VGC Hypervoice to VGC Hypervoice at gmail.com. And another thing is uh we now have postings on Trainer Tower. I finally put up a thread there in the general discussion section on that website. So if you guys need to leave, if you want to check the check out that listing there or post in those in that thread, post a reply with feedback there, that works too. Um and lastly, you can find all of us on Twitter as well. Gavin, where can people find you?
1: They can find me at comvgc, K-O-M-V-G-C.
0: Perfect, thank you. And Alex, what about you? Where can people find you?
1: I'm at lexiconvgc. And
2: where will they follow you, Stephen?
0: I am at SuperMorioka. Thank you so much for listening to the show. We hope you've enjoyed it. And stay tuned for more.